Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Food and Psych podcast. Today's episode is an urgent response to some very sad recent news and some very worrying statistics. The worlds of fashion and food are still reeling from the deaths of designer Kate Spade and chef and presenter Anthony Bourdain from suicide. In the same week, a report was published in the UK showing that teen suicides are on the rise and have increased by 107% in London alone, and that was in just the last five years. That number is four times the national average. Recent research from the Centre for Disease Control showed that since 1999, the suicide rate in the US grew by more than 25%. Last week, the funeral was held for Tim Bergling, also known as Avicii, who is also believed to have taken his own life. In fact, even as I write this introduction on a Monday morning, my train has been diverted because someone has been hit by a train in what I assume is a suicide. For anyone working in mental health, these are not unfamiliar issues, but the recent incidents have brought the discussion much more into the public eye and highlighted that many, many more people are struggling than perhaps we'd like to admit. You very rightly have to be careful about reporting or speculating on suicide in the media, but I did think that it was important for there to be a thoughtful, sensitive response, not just to the sad news itself, but what it might be telling us about general levels of distress in society. So, in this episode, I've teamed up with a colleague to help offer some support for people struggling with thoughts of self-harm or suicide, or anyone worried about a loved one. My guest is Dr. Sarah Vora, and she's a child psychiatrist, columnist, and best-selling author of Mental Health in Children and Young People. And we discuss how to identify depression and suicide risk in yourself, children, and adults. We offer strategies on how to intervene during the early stages of depression before it reaches crisis point, but also describe what the priorities are if you believe someone is at imminent risk of self-harm or suicide. Crucially, we offer practical strategies on how to have the very difficult but incredibly important conversation, how to ask someone if they are having thoughts of taking their own life. We talk about what happens in terms of mental health care after an attempt and provide resources for people bereaved by suicide. This was a very heavy conversation, even for us, and we understand that these issues are very difficult to think about talk about and listen to. So please note that if you are concerned about yourself or someone else right now, do call emergency services immediately. 
This episode is for information purposes only and should not be taken as diagnosis or treatment. It doesn't replace having direct contact with services yourself. If you are feeling particularly fragile, it may be best for you not to listen to this episode, but to reach out to one of the resources that I've attached to the show notes that can be found on my website, www.kimberlywilson.co forward slash podcast. So I'm here with Dr. Sarah Vora. So hello. Properly pronounced. Yes. Fantastic. And we're here to have, I guess it's actually quite an urgent episode of the podcast. It's very much a response to some of the more shocking statistics and information that's come out in the last couple of weeks. Absolutely. And so I thought it was really important for us to sit down together, I think, as mental health professionals and to have a clear constructive and pragmatic discussion about the effects and the evidence and the experience and the about the realities I suppose yeah. the actual medical and psychological and professional realities of, of self-harm and suicide because we can see these headlines but actually how does that translate on the ground and actually if people if stuff on the headlines resonates with people what can they actually do because we know in times of crisis we turn to Dr Google and actually that's going to return thousands of hits mm. that we can't always make sense of so actually like you said it just felt like the right time to bring something out like this that meant that people could have a, a sort of no-nonsense expert guide to self-harm and suicide but more than that walk away hopefully with some practical tips if they're struggling themselves or know someone that might be struggling as well you know because it's an incredibly difficult thing to talk about I mean aside from if you're having the experience yourself even just raising the question can be this impossible conversation to have and impossible thing to think about but really if we can't have that conversation who can absolutely um and so i'm really grateful for you being here and i really hope and i'm absolutely sure they will but i really hope people go away with something useful and practical and that it remains a resource that people can return to if they need to and share okay so let's start i suppose this is being recorded in early June 2018 um, and very recently we had two high profile suicides in the news of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain and in that same week there were statistics released about the rise in teenage suicide in the UK generally but particularly in London where yeah. it grows by 107%. Yeah. And so we're asking some really quite serious questions about why people in general and maybe young people in particular are so distressed and so I'm quite grateful that the two of us come I mean you're a child psychiatrist and I work with adults and so hopefully we'll cover a spectrum of of age groups and be able to look at the similarities and differences between the self-harm and suicidal experiences in those respective age groups because the the way you approach them has to be suitable for that yeah yeah, absolutely yeah okay and I suppose it's also worth just being absolutely clear that we're talking very much about self-harm and suicide in relation to experiences of depression and mental illness we're not talking about euthanasia or assisted suicide and those sorts of issues just people are absolutely clear maybe it's helpful for people to have an understanding maybe it's helpful for professionals as well the the difference between psychiatrist and psychologist um in respect to to 
these issues. So, did you want to kick off as a... Uh, no, I've spoken plenty. Okay. <laughs> so, I suppose my job as a psychiatrist, um, kind of going back to my early training, so I qualified for medical school um, in 2008, um, and then I go into my general doctoring, um, so two years doing medicine surgery, and I, within that I did a psychiatry placement, really enjoyed it, and so for the last eight years I've been doing psychiatry, um, specialising in child psychiatry for the last five years. Um or actually no four years rather and um, due to start my consultant job in July and in terms of what I see a lot of the time um, we see children technically as young as naught up to the age of 18 but the ages of zero to five tend to be managed really by community paediatrics we Mm -hmm. don't tend to see a lot of the younger age group and we see a range of conditions so from uh, insomnia depression anxiety eating disorders ptsd grief right through to self-harm and suicide so it's a broad range and i suppose my approach is i I'm always very reluctant to diagnose children Mm -hmm. so young because it it might be that they present to the service at the age of, say, 10 with, I don't know, sleeplessness. And actually, if you pigeonhole them in a particular category, it's often quite hard to shake that label if Mm -hmm. by the time that they're discharged, say, at the age of 18, it might become apparent that they didn't need that label or that label wasn't warranted. So actually what I tend to do is focus very much on symptoms. So actually what is that child presenting with there and then and actually looking at ways to support that child. And often, you know, this topic sort of self-harm and suicide, sadly, a lot of the kids that I see, you know, from age of sort of 13 upwards will struggle with self-harm thoughts and will struggle with thoughts about not wanting to be alive and actually may engage in self-harming, whether that's through cutting. Cutting tends to be the one that's kind of publicised more often but actually things like head banging or hair pulling there's actually other means that a child might verbalize their distress to you and i suppose it's being able to understand the reasons why a child self-harms um is really important because for one child it might be very different to another yeah thank you that's really helpful and i think i guess in terms of treatment i pick up after someone is discharged from from child and adolescent services and i think it's also worth making the point that with particularly with self-harm i spent um several years working in prisons Mm -hmm. and obviously there's a huge amount of trauma in prisons people come from very traumatic backgrounds then there's the trauma of the crime itself there's a trauma of being imprisoned and so we had enormously high rates of of self-harm and again that it's not just cutting that people will find other ways of harming themselves um, and they will find very for want of a better word creative means of of creating tools or ways Um, to do that and we see that with children so typically with children that I see they will take the blade out of a pencil sharpener, mm. yeah. which that is, you know, it's a shocking, um, like I say, it's one of the better word, creative way, mm. but actually that is the the depth that a child will go to in order to get that relief or whatever it is that self-harm offers. Um, so it's a real problem. Actually, it's not about necessarily safeguarding your immediate home environment. You can only do so much but actually the child's intent on doing something mm-hmm. it's about thinking about the wider environment as well and and there's also a way that it might show up differently between males and females and I'm, I'm thinking for example about sometimes you'll see young men who get into a lot of fights 
Yeah. And there's something really interesting about the ways that sometimes people will encounter or or try to find a way to get into fights in order to get themselves beaten up. Yeah. Actually, and that yeah. will be you know maybe if they get arrested if they get you know cautioned it will be you were fighting you were engaged in some sort of um gbh or yeah. abh in the street but actually what was the intention behind starting that fight and yeah. is that a way in which people can self-harm and again other ways that people self-harm through perhaps restrictive eating behaviors yeah. maybe aggressive exercise behaviors maybe through depriving themselves of sleep or some other kind of form of self-care so i guess yeah the point is that it's not always obvious physical traumas or cutting yeah. that there are other ways that people can find to to harm themselves and, and actually as as carers as friends family parents we need to be alert to something that seems out the ordinary yeah okay um i thought even though this is a discussion really about self-harm and suicide that suicide is the end or later stages of a longer experience of of distress or depression emotional emotional pain so i thought it would be useful for the audience to have a kind of orientation a kind of um, overview of actually what happens early along in that progression so how often chronic stress becomes depression depression leads into suicidal ideation because ideally what we want is for people to be recognizing these symptoms either in themselves all the people that they care for so that they can intervene as early, early as possible. Yeah. Okay, so I'll just, I'll read through these because I wrote them down just to make sure I didn't miss anything. And actually there was a, a recent study that looked at um, some of the biggest indicators of someone being at risk um, of self-harm and suicide. And in those, in that particular paper, um, that was the experience of widowhood. So we're talking there about loss of a significant relationship. And I would say more broadly, any kind of significant loss, it's not necessarily a partner, but it would also be obviously losing a child or sometimes losing a job can feel like a significant loss. So loss in in a broad sense. Uh, Physical abuse in childhood. And again, any abuse in childhood, I think would be a really significant factor. Health problems can increase your risk and there's lots of metabolic reasons behind that. Job strain is a massive one and also sexual dysfunction. So there are some things that are perhaps less obvious as yeah. indicators for distress that perhaps people need to, to be aware of. Other things more generally in terms of thinking about your experience of stress and depression is sometimes there is a family history of it. Sometimes that's genetic and sometimes that's more behavioural and, and yeah. how you deal with emotions. Any kind of physical trauma, particularly head trauma. So actually people with a higher rate of concussion, if you've played contact sports have higher rates of depression and that can put you at more risk of kind of attempted or completed suicide in the end previous emotional trauma uh bullying workplace stress and burnout as we've mentioned before and experiencing racial religious prejudice other forms of discrimination social factors such as job loss money worries poor housing so all of these things can create an environment of chronic stress and it's that chronic stress that can go on and build up into an experience that leads into depression and i think i also wanted to say in terms of of young people the the evidence is early at the moment yeah. that there is emerging evidence about the excessive exposure to social media and, and I'm what that's doing to yeah. young people and i'm certainly seeing that anecdotally that she when i see a child that comes to clinic and i'm kind of getting a gauge i suppose of their social media use these children are glued to their phones and actually what's happening are these sort of highlight reels on social media just feeding into their low self-esteem thoughts around themselves feeding into that anxiety perhaps even triggering for um their eating 
perhaps. So actually, like you said, it's kind of it's very early days, but anecdotally, I think a lot of psychiatrists are seeing the negative impact that social media has on children's mental health. So maybe that's something we can think about when we're talking about interventions in a moment yeah. and kind of taking care of yourself and helping to take care of the people around you. It's also worth noting, of course, that there are other factors. So it's a very broad range of factors that feed into it but we're kind of letting you know so that you can be aware because it might be different for every single person who's listening so other things like substance abuse and traumatic events including and almost especially the suicide of someone close to you or close to them increases someone's risk of of death by suicide Mm. so experiencing a suicide in your close circle increases your own risk as well and that's really important for people to, to bear in mind yeah no absolutely So the point of outlining all of those factors is, I think, just to make clear that there are a lot of reasons why we experience emotional distress Mm -hmm. and there are a lot of factors that create pressure and make us feel as if we're not coping very well. So I want people listening, if they're feeling like that, to know that it's not you're not weird or you're not weak there isn't something fundamentally wrong with you there are a lot of really good and understandable reasons why you might be feeling like that and sometimes we can't always pinpoint a reason and that actually might come out later on when they have the intervention that they need when they've got that appointment with the GP or the psychiatrist or the psychologist that the, the reason might not be immediately obvious but not to ignore the feeling or the thought that they have nonetheless absolutely yeah and I think it's also really important to understand that emotional distress doesn't always show up as a psychological symptom yeah and and almost increasingly people show up with physical symptoms or somatic symptoms and I'll just mention a couple of those and these are indicators perhaps that you're under a lot of strain and that it's getting to a level where you might be struggling to cope so you might be experiencing kind of physically uh, back pain or neck pain heart palpitations or chest pain can be a real indicator of anxiety digestion problems changing your weight so it's either losing a lot of weight or, or putting on a significant amount of weight in a short amount of time a loss of interest in the things that you would otherwise enjoy a change in sexual function and loss of libido or if you find yourself or notice that someone around you is using a lot of substances and stimulants so drinking a lot more coffee smoking a lot in certain occupations there's, there can be a real drinking culture or a real drug culture and that's all about kind of staying on top and yeah. keeping up with the pressure but actually it's not helping you really cope yeah and then psychologically the indicators of stress and depression again might be things that are unusual that you might not expect so people being more aggressive or snappy or short or short-tempered is an indicator that perhaps that they're under a lot of pressure um anxiety depression obviously or low mood feeling overwhelmed is a big one people saying i can't cope i'm not i'm not managing um poor concentration or forgetfulness procrastination is Mm. one and that's a really interesting one because people will then often then get angry with themselves for procrastinating and not doing the things they should be doing when actually the procrastination is a sign that they're already under an enormous amount of pressure. Cynicism (laughs) is an interesting one, of course. Some people are just cynical, but increased cynicism and a loss of confidence or self-esteem. So those types of changes in either your physiology or your psychology might be real indicators that there's something up that and and might be time to talk to someone or seek some professional support definitely and i think there's a lot of overlap with um younger children in terms of the symptoms that you've just described but with the very very young children often it might be a bit more difficult to 
tease out those symptoms. Mm. So it might be that you rely on the physical symptoms like, you know, typically the tummy ache and not wanting to go. So, so physical symptoms that you can't necessarily make sense of or mm. that have been ruled out by a GP or healthcare professional. And it might be thinking about the language that you use for that child. So again, kind of thinking about those buzzwords stress you know being cynical but trying to adapt it to say a seven-year-old might be a bit more tricky so for a child it might be something like um being more unruly or being more aggressive or being more snappy or short-tempered it might be that they isolate themselves from the family so perhaps previously they were always getting stuck into family games or family days out and actually you're finding that they're barricading themselves in their room they're not wanting to get stuck in they're tearful um, they're not eating they're off their food or like you said they can go the other way where actually they're eating too much and and putting on weight and sleep can often be a, one of the first things that we notice that goes Absolutely. so perhaps that the child's previously was a good sleeper and is finding it difficult to settle on a night and is up and down all hours um, through to the early morning and then getting up early hours of the morning and finding it difficult to settle back off to sleep. So I suppose it's thinking about not ruling out depression or chronic stress or whatever it is because of someone's age. Because actually I have seen kids as young as seven that do have a clinical depression and that who have had psychological therapies in order to help with their depressive symptoms and actually people hear that and they think god what's a seven-year-old got to be depressed about but it comes back to that point that yes there might be a whole host of reasons but you might not necessarily get to the bottom of it until that child has come out of therapy the other side absolutely and i guess to pick up on your point about sleep because Mm. across the board poor sleep interrupted sleep um insomnia is an indicator of depression or depression risk but also it's not just a symptom, it can be a causal factor. So yeah. interrupted or poor sleep can lead to lowered mood, increased anxiety yeah. and things like that. So we might be thinking about sleep being a really important intervention in the early stages Absolutely. to help get someone back onto the road to recovery. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we've looked at some of the risk factors. We've looked at some of the psychological and physiological signs and symptoms. But it'd be really good if we could have an idea about behavioural or changes in in the way someone acts that might be an indicator. So often um, when I see a parent or I see a child or someone, a teacher perhaps, that's concerned about someone else's mental health, they can't always put into words exactly what's going on for that person. They just kind of explain, oh, I know something's up, but I can't articulate it. So one of the exercises that I get them to do is called a day in the life off. And it's about getting that person to map out what the other person's life was like previously. So before the concern arose. So for instance, if you're worried about, I don't know, a, a colleague at work, and you're worried about their mental health, you might not know them that well. It might be that you've only been in the job about a month, but you know already that something's up. So I always think, start back to basics. So if we take this colleague, he's always in the office at a certain time, he's always punctual. So take John, for instance. John comes into work at eight o'clock. He's the first in the office. He gets everyone in the team around a coffee. He sits at his desk. He's very diligent. He meets all his deadlines. Um, Generally, the boss doesn't have an issue with him. He's very reliable he breaks for lunch he joins the rest of the colleagues for lunch he's always got a very hearty appetite he leaves the office um, bang on five every day having completed all his tasks returns home 
so you think actually I'm going to give you that snapshot and as a colleague observing John if you suddenly think oh John's coming in an hour late John's actually not motivated to get a round of coffee in he's not joining the team for lunch oh I've noticed that he's lost a bit of weight already from tracking that basic baseline from the hours of say eight o'clock up until five you actually probably know John a lot better than you think you do and it's about not just thinking oh I think something's up with him but actually being able to trace exactly what might be going on for him mm. so that when you have the conversation with him so whether you're John's employer or whether you're a close colleague you can say John I've noticed actually that you're coming in late or you're not joining us for lunch I've noticed that you look like you've lost a bit of weight and actually already you've got three symptoms there mm. from from going from that feeling of not being able to articulate what I'm going for on for John actually by just stripping it down going back to the basic outline of what his day is like you've managed to generate three symptoms and, and get an idea of what might be going on for him and I think that's, that's a really important point is that I think sometimes what keeps people back is that they don't feel close enough like yeah. it's not my place to say or I don't know him well enough maybe I, my ideas won't be welcome yeah but or his wife surely his wife's noticed or surely he's got a mate or someone that can you know, take up this conversation with him. But actually, for John, you don't know what's going on in his personal circumstances. That might mean that he might have to rely on a complete stranger or work colleague that he's only known for a month mm-hmm. to be able to. Because I think to rely on that person to express how they're feeling, because we've described some quite distressing symptoms, it's quite difficult for those mm-hmm. people to come forward and put into words how they're feeling. So often it does rely on the observer whether it's the parent, the carer, the husband, the wife, whatever it may be, to be able to kind of point out what might be going on for that person. And I guess that's one of the underlying themes of this conversation is that, I'm sure we'll come back to it later, is that we can't rely on the distressed person to be making that first step or to reaching out themselves. Yeah. And it might be that they're not capable, but also it might be that developmentally they're not able. So if going back to my example of a seven-year-old, actually relies on his parents to know what was going on for him and again looking at his baseline his parents noticed that he wasn't joining the family um, for days out he was not eating his tea he was not sleeping very well so again by getting them to outline what his baseline was previously immediately that told me within 10 minutes of sitting and talking to them what might you know that there's something going on for him whether it's with his physical health or mental health I think we've given a kind of outline of the the lay of the land and and this is the point in the conversation where we we turn to the really serious and difficult topics and that's really around the the experience of suicide or or an attempt both as the person making the attempt and the person around it um, and also having that conversation yeah because it's the having of the conversation like once you've understood what the risk factors are once Mm. you've recognized perhaps that there are changes in that person's behavior or their outlook or or how they or their appearance then the point about having a conversation there are a lot of fears i think not just the difficulty that people have having difficult conversations anyway which is is very common but there are a lot of fears about well if i raise the issue of depression or self-harm or of suicide i'll be putting ideas in people's heads yes but that's not the case no and that's certainly something that i've experienced um i just only really recently in the last few months was invited to a sixth form and my brief was to talk to these sixth form students about common conditions that affect 
that age group. So we're talking to about, you know, we're talking 16 to 18 year olds. And I covered everything from depression, anxiety, eating disorders to self-harm and suicide. And on the first day, I delivered a workshop to about 100 lower six students. And the following day, I returned to the upper six, delivering exactly the same workshop. But five minutes before I was due to start, the teacher pulled me to one side and said, you know that bit about self-harm and suicide? Do you mind taking it out? And I just was astonished because I thought, you know, as a professional going into a school, actually it's important to share with those kids. And that was my brief. Share with these students common conditions that affect their age. Why were you being asked to not talk about it? So the reason that I wasn't, that I was asked not to talk about it was because the students on the previous day had raised issue with the staff that they felt that they were being singled out. So there was a handful of students that were experiencing self-harm, perhaps suicidal thoughts, that felt that I'd been dragged in by the school as an intervention for them. Mm-hmm. And actually, I would argue that that's important. Actually, that's great that those students were able to actually express that to the staff and actually that was the staff's opportunity to move that conversation forward rather than acknowledge what they've said and said oh actually yes we'll we'll censor the professional Mm. coming in because that's quite concerning for me that actually if a professional going in is not able to share practical safe strategies of how to manage quite distressing thoughts or how to support one of your friends that's experiencing these thoughts how on earth are we expecting the staff Mm. to be able to deliver these strategies on top of their regular day job but it, I mean it really makes the point about how difficult these conversations yeah. are and how much panic they evoke in the person listening to it and I, and any talk about well mental health we know that there's an enormous stigma around mental health but when it gets to these that will feel like the very dangerous, risky behaviours, self-harm, suicidal ideation and suicidal attempts themselves there's there is, I think, there is a panic. There's a kind of terror yeah. in listening to it about about the dangers and the harms and the risks, and then your responsibility within yeah. it. But the point is that whether you panic or not, this person is experiencing exactly those feelings. Yeah, and actually, is trying to get rid of that fear that by having the conversation, you're going to plant a seed in their head, or you're going to encourage them to carry through what with whatever they're thinking because I think there's a real fear particularly as I was training that by trying to kind of delve deep and trying to get essentially get the person to spell out what their plans are or intent is that there's this fear that oh have I given them the idea that they might then actually carry it out yeah and I think we can we can say quite explicitly that that's not the case yeah. and, and for a couple of reasons one is that the Samaritans who are the UK's largest anti-suicide or suicide care charity asked the question directly and yeah. in their training I was a Samaritan for a little while in their training they asked the question directly mm. because it's important to convey to the person that you're able to hear yeah. and you're willing to listen to what they're going through but also obviously on a personal professional note that the this is a question we regularly ask our yeah. clients and that we have to yeah. because we need to understand where they are in the trajectory or the progression from kind of perhaps low mood to a more risky scenario. And it's never been the case in my clinical experience that I've asked the question and someone said, 
oh, well, I wasn't, but I am now, you know, it's, exactly. it's, it's, that's it's, not what happens. Yeah. You know, they'll either say something like, oh, no, I, I wouldn't do that. Or no, I'm not, it's it's not that bad. Or, or somewhere in the middle where they'll say something like, oh, well, I sometimes when I go to bed, I wish I, I don't wake up or I, I want it to all be over, which is a kind of medium indicator of risk to somewhere closer to where we're thinking about imminent risk, which is talking about actual plans, yeah. ways to do it, methods, times and whether they've done it before yeah um and 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 it's important that you know where that person is in that uh, kind of spectrum of distress yeah. to know what the best intervention yeah. is at that point yeah and also in my experience i've noticed it's not to never assume just because they're with a parent or carer that they will be open and honest with that parent and carer present so often it might be that i ask the question directly to a child they might deny it and then I might offer that child time on their own at the end of the session where the parent's quite happy to sit, wait in the waiting area. And it might be within that time on our own that the child says, actually, you know, that question you asked me, I do experience those thoughts. And then there's something about, because obviously I have a duty to inform the parent or carer, particularly when it involves risk and risk that the child poses to themselves or to other people. But there's something about a professional being able to relay that information to a parent that is easier for a child than for the child to have to do it themselves again for a number of reasons whether that they're worried that the parent will be angry with them or they're worried that they'll let that parent down there, there could be a whole host of reasons and it's about making sure that you create a safe space for that person to open up to you and if you get a sense that actually they're holding something back it's about thinking how best to support them to get the information that you need absolutely and we'll go into some of those practical interventions in a moment i just wanted to make a little i guess quick comment about um borderline personality disorder i'm trained in a particular type of therapy called dbt dialectical behavioral therapy which is specifically designed for people with borderline personality disorder um, and personality disorders more generally but i just want to to make a comment because i think quite often not just in their personal relationships but often often in professional services people with this diagnosis get quite a raw deal because one of the characteristics of bpd is quite a lot of quite often of self-harming behaviors yeah but also uh quite frequent talk or attempts at suicide and in the past even in professional journals or or discussions and conferences words like manipulative have been used to describe this sort of behavior and in my years of working with people with this diagnosis that's not my experience that i think we need to understand first of all that people with this diagnosis experience quite extreme emotions that can feel completely unbearable and so often for them the idea or even just just talking about suicide feels like a way out it feels like a way of coping with something that feels unbearable often they haven't had the opportunity in early life to learn how to regulate their own emotions Mm. so whether that's because life at home was chaotic or there was a very seriously mentally ill parent or Mm. whether there was neglect for some reason they haven't developed those skills of being able to regulate their own emotions so when they do experience intense emotions it is overwhelming and it does feel like too much and it does feel like they want to to get away from it as quickly as possible and and not always but often with this diagnosis the person has suffered some sort of early life trauma or early life abuse and again that creates an environment or a sense in which the world isn't a very safe 
place and they might feel at times that they're better off out of it. And so I guess I just want to to say that so that if you find yourself, if you've got a friend or a relative who has this diagnosis and you feel very frustrated or even professionals, because I know professionals who have responded to their own frustrations rather than the person, to try to hold on to the compassion yes your own feelings are really important but also try to hold on to the compassion for the person in front of you as yeah. well like they're doing their very very best to survive because it actually it might be their 10th attempt at ending their life but actually you need to treat that 10th attempt as seriously as you treated that first um, and not not view it as a pattern of behavior because actually there's it's, it's their way of articulating their distress and they are like you said they are real emotions and it's actually making sure that you are compassionate um with them okay next week let me have that moment (laughs) one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your health care that's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, okay, let's have a think about when to seek help, either for yourself or for other people. So again, we were kind of speaking about not necessarily relying on the person that's experiencing the emotions to come forward. But if you're noted, if we go back to that day in the life off um, task, actually you could map it out for yourself. So if you're thinking, oh, I feel a bit out of sorts and you think, what am I normally like? And you might notice that you're getting out of bed later, you're off your food, you're not sleeping, you're really snappy to those around you make sure you listen to those early warning signs and either go to see your doctor or kind of think about yourselves what triggers might be going on for you whether that's with your physical or your mental health so actually it might be a case that you might be able to nip it in the bud earlier if you're able to notice those early warning signs and it's about kind of thinking about triggers is there stuff that's got is there been a change at work has mm-hmm. there been a change in your family circumstance that might be able to explain it and if the problem persists to the extent that it's impacting on your family circumstances it's impacting on your ability to do your job properly then it's about making sure that you access support from your GP or another healthcare professional early and it's about not being dismissive of yeah. those things because 
you're absolutely right that maybe you've noticed that your mood's a bit flatter or you're a bit more fatigued than normal yeah. or whatever it might be and you look around at your life and think oh well I've changed job but things aren't that bad mm. or we're having a bit of a, a rocky patch in our relationship but it's not that bad and I think it's very easy to be dismissive of actually what something that might be affecting you quite deeply yeah and we might even go further and well I think we should go further because actually men die of suicide much more than women do and that maybe this is in part about this way in which men aren't encouraged to talk about how they feel or are more likely to dismiss distress at its early stages because they feel like they should just be able to handle yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. And we're in a society now where it's kind of, you get a badge of honour if you're busy or you're stressed out, or you're working all hours God sends. But actually, like you said, it's it's about listening in and tapping into when you may be struggling in terms of um, signs of stress or distress. Okay, so thinking about if it's happening for someone else, if you've noticed someone you care about seems to be quite at risk and you've noticed all of these risk factors and these changes in them and you perhaps notice that they're withdrawing it's it's really looking very very serious how in practical terms should people address the conversation yeah so there's no kind of one size fits all but in my experience the experience that i've shared with um, the clients that i see it's thinking firstly tlc so time location and the purposes for my book that I've released and also in my practice I use C for child but you can use it as characteristic if you're talking about adults so firstly time so thinking about the timing that you have your conversation so actually you're not likely to get the conversation you're not likely to get the answers within a minute of the conversation so making sure that when you approach that person that you have time to dedicate to them because it might be that they've been struggling with these difficulties for some time so if you kind of put a time limit on how long you've got so for instance rushing out the door on the way to do the school run or in between meetings at the workplace actually that doesn't lend itself to a sensitive conversation because actually you're time pressured your phone might go off any moment you might be expecting an incoming email that you need to act So it's making sure that you're free from any distractions and that you're able to give that person the time and space that they need to be able to offload to you. Because, sorry, just a quick interruption, because I I guess the point to remember is that having these sorts of thoughts is incredibly frightening an experience and it's incredibly isolating and that it will take an enormous amount of courage and time um, for that person to to get to the point of of saying the words, whether it's a child or an adult. And you, you probably won't get it in the first conversation, but if you're time pressured and your phone goes off, actually, what does that convey to that person? It says, well, actually, the reason I didn't share it, because I know people don't have time for me. People don't want to listen to what I've got to say. You know, people don't want to help me. And it just feeds and validates their distress, really. So time's the first point. Then thinking about location, so where you have the conversation. And this can be quite helpful if, say for instance in my practice there might be kids that don't want to come out of their bedroom or that will not necessarily have a conversation unless it's over a video game or whatever it may be it's about making sure that wherever you have the conversation that person's comfortable so yes it might not be ideal to be camped out in their bedroom but if the child's more comfortable in that surrounding it might lend itself to them opening up to you similarly thinking about 
things like busy coffee shops, restaurants. Again, it's not going to lend itself to a sensitive conversation. So it's about thinking about a place where you are able to have an open and frank conversation and where that person feels most comfortable. And then that kind of feeds into C, which is child or characteristic. So an approach that you use for a six-year-old is going to be very different for a 60-year-old. For a six-year-old, you might, I don't know, camp out in the makeshift den in the garden and you might try and have a conversation with them that way. You know, if you pull a 60-year-old into a makeshift den, you're really not going to get very far. So it's about thinking, what is, what's that person's interest? What wouldn't necessarily ring the alarm bell that this is a serious conversation? Because often, by the very nature of we need to sit down and talk... It instantly gets people back Absolutely. gets people's backs up. So it's about thinking what approach is not going to ring alarm bells for that individual and frighten them off. Yeah. Yeah. So I think even before having the conversation, it's thinking about those three points. So time, location and characteristic. Fantastic. And you've got another mnemonic about the actual kind of conversation yeah. itself. So we're hearing so much in the media at the moment about let's improve the conversation around mental health, the how are you campaigns. And we know actually, if you ask someone how they are, they're just going to I'm fine. Them. I'm fine. Exactly. <laughs> End of conversation. And you as the person that have asked that, I thought, well, actually I've asked them that they, how they are. They're saying they're fine, job done. And you kind of get on with your day but actually there's no accountability there's no follow-up to that conversation or as the person having asked them how they are you might be sat on feelings oh I know that they're anything but fine but they've told me that they're fine and do I ask them again or how long do I and there's that uncertainty so I thought actually we need a structure to a conversation that meant that that person could say that they were fine but you as the person of having that's having the conversation could acknowledge that but be able to move forward with your worries and try and get that person the support they need so in terms of um, the mnemonic that I've created it's face fear so F is for face to face so wherever possible trying to have a face to face conversation with the person that you're worried about that might not always be possible it might be that you have to have a conversation over the phone or behind the bedroom door but the idea being wherever possible having a face to face conversation because it's often the subtleties in body language that you might pick up on maybe the person's tearful or they might appear angry and actually that's quite useful for you to be able to reflect whatever you observe back to them A is about being attentive so you can rush in there with your agenda but actually what you need to do is listen to the person that's that's where the how are you comes in so how are you doing I'm worried about you and actually giving that person opportunity to speak so free from any influence any bias from you just listening C is about remaining calm so if you're rushing in there in a flurry of panic distress and it is a distressing if you are worried about someone it will be a distressing time or it will be quite frustrating you might be angry with them but what you want to do is convey to that person that you're emotionally able to take on whatever they throw at you because it might be that that person is worried about opening up to you because they're worried that you'll get angry Mm. or they're worried that they'll upset you and if they're faced with someone who's tearful or angry all you're doing is validating the reasons that they don't want to open up mm. and it might cause them to clam up because one of the, the common fears is that or the, the common feeling is well this distress is too much for me I'm sure it's going to be too much for somebody else exactly and that's what you kind of want to avoid conveying to them and by all means it's going to be a distressing time for you and it's about if it is impacting you it's about probably getting some support for yourself as well in all of this because trying to support someone's emotional health can be quite difficult. And then the fear aspect, so it's a silent heave of the face, and the fear aspect is about your chance to convey to that person what you're worried about. So it might be that when you've been attentive, they might turn around and say, I'm fine, but it's about, okay, 
I'm going to tell you why I'm worried that you're not fine. So F is for facts. So going back to that day in the life of, John, I've noticed you're coming into the office late. You're not making everyone rounds of coffee. You're not joining us for lunch. You've lost weight. Whatever it is that you've noticed, it's about spelling out exactly what you've noticed. Now, presenting someone with their facts might lead them to be defensive. Oh, no, I'm fine. No, I'm I don't know what you're worrying about, but the E aspect is explaining why you're worried. So putting it into context. So I've noticed that you're coming into the office late. You used to always be first in. I've noticed that you're not joining the team for lunch. You used to always round us up when it was bang on 12. I've noticed that you lost a bit of weight and actually I'm, I'm worried. So it's about putting everything into context. So it says to that person, this is what I've noticed and this is why I'm worried. And I think that's so important, even if they do get defensive, um, yeah. is that, again, going back to the idea that depression, anxiety, other mental illnesses, part of the, the core features of them is how isolating they can be yeah. and how much they make you feel separate from the rest of the world and separate from the people around you. There's something incredibly powerful about being noticed. Exactly. And and even if it's someone who's only known you for a month and you've just shared a couple of coffees together, to know that that person is aware enough of you and interested enough in you they care enough to have this difficult conversation I think can be enormously powerful exactly it just validates their distress and it might not necessarily be that it comes out in that first conversation but you've kind of created that opening that says this is what I've noticed I'm worried about you which lends itself to a future conversation where they might be more open with you And then the A and the R is about agreeing an action review. So whenever we're asking someone how they are, we never actually come back to it. And the whole point of the fear is about making sure that you hold yourself and the other person accountable, that you're going to revisit this conversation. So I know that you're saying you're fine, John, but I've noticed X, Y, and Z. How about I check in with you tomorrow? Or how about if things don't get any better in a week's time, we go and speak to HR together or whatever it may be. But it's about making sure that you have a follow-up conversation because often that's that's too often neglected really and it's the most crucial conversation mm. because it it allows you to be able to track that person's progress so it might be that the very fact that you've had the conversation with John might make, mean that a week down the line he feels better because he's been able to share a lot more someone's taken notice um, he's been able to identify triggers that might be going on that mean that he's struggling at work but if you've left that conversation actually what happens is it just escalates Mm. Um, and it's about being able to signpost people on so even if things don't get better after a week's time it's about where do we move on from here Okay, so that's a kind of description of things slightly earlier on. You know, John is still functioning. He's still coming to work. At least he's still kind of engaged in the rest of his life. And and often that is the case with some people. But if, for example, you're incredibly worried and you think something very bad is going to happen very soon, what is the best way to have the actual conversation about suicide? So I think... It might be that you notice or you are aware that that person might be self-harming. And actually often, if you're aware that someone's self-harming, it might be that you notice an increase in their self-harming behaviour. And that can be something that you point out to me. I've noticed that you're cutting a lot more, or you're off in your bedroom a lot more, or you're, you're banging your head more often than normal. Because actually self-harming doesn't necessarily have to be in the form of things like cutting. It can take on a whole um, variety of kinds and spelling it out to people and not being afraid to ask the question. So going back to what we said earlier, that actually it might be that you ask the question outright and, and say to that person, look, I'm really worried about you. you you're barely functioning. I, I, do you ever have thoughts that you might not want to be here anymore? Thoughts that you don't want to be alive? Um, and actually 
because trying to rely on that person to come forward and share that it's not necessarily going to be the case Mm -hmm. and actually what you need to do is not feed into the stigma of having that conversation by yourself avoiding it or skirting it around Mm -hmm. and actually it might be that you have to come out and ask so it is depending on the individual because it might be different for I don't know a a primary school age child compared to an old age pensioner Mm -hmm. in terms of how you have the conversation Mm -hmm. But again, thinking about sort of developmentally appropriate language. So for John, it might be, John, I've noticed you're struggling. I just wonder, you know, when people feel down and when people are struggling, sometimes they question whether it's worth living anymore. Are you having any of those thoughts? And it's again about normalising his distress. Mm. So actually, it's normal that people feel like that. It's normal that people might want to get up in the morning and just not want to be here. And he might turn around and say, yes, I've had those thoughts. And it's then trying to tease out what's a a general thought of I can't be bothered I can't Mm -hmm. cope with life anymore you know we all experience thoughts like that where we think I can't cope with life but actually it's a kind of a fleeting thought there's no intention behind it but for some people it might move from it being a general thought to more specific thoughts to more regular thoughts so again with John it might be saying so John might say I've got a general thought and it might be do you ever think about ways that you might hurt yourself or have you hurt yourself Mm -hmm. so again trying to encourage that conversation and not worrying that by having the conversation you're going to plant seeds in his mind yeah I think that's the kind of point to really get across that having the conversation isn't making it more likely to happen in fact you're, you're giving the other person an opportunity to unburden this very very difficult thought that they're having and yeah and absolutely if it's in appropriate ways finding a way of saying have you had thoughts of ending your life or yeah. of killing yourself or have you had suicidal thoughts puts it plainly exactly. in the view for the two of you yeah and then the other thing is yes again is have you made a plan because you're absolutely right there's a difference between i've had the thought or you know i've been contemplating it or you know as i said earlier on you know i, I hope not to wake up to well actually I've thought about the means and yeah. the ways of doing it and that is a real indicator of much more heightened risk than than thoughts alone Absolutely. are. Yeah because it might be he might have kind of thoughts that crop into his mind of perhaps taking an overdose or perhaps drowning and it might be that they're just fleeting thoughts again but he might actually go to the extent where he's thinking in a month's time if things don't get better then on this date at this time I'm going to act on this thought mm-hmm. and that's the stuff that you've it's really crucial to tease out because yes someone might experience a thought of that nature and not have an intent to act but in some cases people do plan to act on those thoughts and that's the real worry and it's about making sure that those thoughts are heard and and the other thing that is a real uh, red flag for anybody who's trying to talk to someone around these issues is whether they've had a previous attempt because we know that a previous attempt greatly increases the likelihood of a completed attempt in the future so asking those questions have you ever had the suicidal thoughts if so questions about plan have you thought about ways and means have you started making some form of arrangements to do it do you have a date in mind that sort of stuff and then have you have you done it before yeah and and those are kind of three key questions if you're very very worried about someone exactly okay so you have an idea that John is at imminent risk of harm to himself Mm. the next thing to do really is is what do you think so I suppose it depends on 
what situation you find John in. So it might be you're sat with John, you're in the office and he's expressing to you that he's got these thoughts that he's having every day, sometimes several times in the day, that he wants to end his life in a week's time. Mm -hmm. And actually for me, that would be quite crucial. And if he's making sort of plans and attempts around that. So for me, it'd be crucial actually that John gets some urgent help and something if it's during working hours it might be that he books an appointment urgently with a GP it might be that if it's outside office hours or GPs are closing up or you can't get an appointment that day Mm -hmm. and you worry that actually you don't feel safe John going home it might be that you advise John or you support John and going to A&E mm-hmm. or getting his family or you know whoever mm-hmm. is kind of his next of kin to support him to take him to A&E to get an urgent assessment mm-hmm. because actually sitting on it when those thoughts are kind of quite pressing and imminent is is a risk really yeah it's this is a point where you don't want to leave the person alone really. absolutely so whether yeah. it's kind of staying if it's in a home environment for example or a friend or something and you're able to stay with them then to stay yeah. with them or find someone who can stay with them um or exactly you know calling an ambulance if yeah. it's imminent and, and getting someone to them making someone safe this is certainly something when i worked in prisons which is essentially a it's a home of sorts is where people live yeah. and so it's thinking about the keeping the immediate environment safe so are there any means of which they can harm themselves in the immediate vicinity so yeah. we would always be thinking about looking in the obvious places under beds under mattresses yeah. um, on the outside of window sills window ledges um, yeah. where people might hide tools for self-harm you won't be able to find everything exactly as you said no. and it might ways that people can yeah. hurt themselves but and it might not be immediately obvious that someone's at imminent risk so one of the tools that I use the traffic light system is about giving John or anyone else the tools to be able to communicate with you without using words that they feel that they're imminent risk so it might be again that they go to all extremes to hide from you what's going on and hide their distress but the traffic light system is about it's just that traffic light so you've got red amber and green you might agree with john flash me a red color card every time you think that actually you're going to act on your thoughts Mm -hmm. um green if you actually you're okay and yellow if you're somewhere in the middle and then you agree what each of the colors um what action is required from each of the colors so it might be say if john was a bit younger if if john was a teenager it might be that you make bracelets a red bracelet a yellow bracelet and a green bracelet and it might be that you say to them okay if you're struggling and you think that you're going to hurt yourself imminently then you put your red bracelet on so actually when you walk into a room I don't need to fire a load of questions at you. I know instantly that by looking at your wrist, you're wearing a red bracelet, right, that means that we need to go to the doctors now. And Amber might be, oh, I need to keep an eye on you. I need to check on you every 10 minutes. So it's about agreeing kind of a universal language as to what each of the colours stands for. And it might be that you're not necessarily a bracelet fan or you don't think the cards are going to necessarily work with someone like John, but things like emojis work brilliantly. So, okay, John, would you send me a red heart emoji or, you know, a thumbs up emoji when things are okay? And actually it's about almost creating a code in a different Mm. language that instantly tells you that that person's at imminent risk. I think that's a really useful tool in terms of, because I think one of the things people really struggle with is is finding the words. We're not massively good at difficult conversations in general and difficult conversations about risky and dangerous behaviours are are even more difficult. So finding a way that that can happen is fantastic. I guess it's also important though to remember that you you shouldn't just be relying on on the traffic lights, that you should always be vigilant for yourself. Exactly, exactly. All right. I 
guess I wanted to make a point I think we touched on it earlier on but I guess just to kind of uh, reiterate that hearing someone talk about self-harm or suicide can bring up a lot of quite strong feelings in the listener Um, and we shouldn't just assume that the thing that people feel or the reaction that they have immediately is one of compassion and empathy because it stirs up a lot of emotions and and sometimes that's panic and sometimes that's fear and sometimes it might be disbelief or or anger and those feelings are absolutely valid like Mm. you are absolutely entitled to feel those things but I think you have to work very hard not to push those back on the person who who is feeling suicidal. Yeah. So it's not about saying, don't you know what this would do to everybody? Or can you imagine the impact this is going to have on me? It's, yeah. That's not the time. Yeah, absolutely. Because actually, there's a whole host of reasons why someone might feel suicidal. And actually a whole host of reasons why they won't want to open up to you. And actually, they aren't able to manage or tolerate their own distress hence why they're self-harming and why they feel suicidal so trying to take on board your emotional distress is just going to kind of tip, tip the balance really exactly. yeah um and and again if you have very strong religious or cultural views about self-harm or suicide again absolutely entitled to those feelings but this i would suggest is not the time to be making that person think about it because first of all they've probably already considered those arguments and dismissed them or found a way around them or uh, rationalized them in some way second of all it's most likely going to add to their burden of guilt or feeling worthless or feeling as if they're not good enough and you might be doing more harm than good exactly and your part in that situation is to keep them safe And also, I guess there was another thing is about secrets. So you have this conversation and someone opens up to you and this is possibly more likely to happen with younger people, Mm. but they say, please don't tell anyone. Yeah. You can't make that promise. No. And that's something that I make very clear. So when I sit the parent out in the waiting area and I have that one-on-one time with the child, even before I get them to start talking, I do give a preamble that if there's anything that they share with me that puts them at risk or someone else at risk, I have the duty to share that with their parent. And actually, a lot of the time, it doesn't, I don't think, impact on the child opening up. They will probably open up to me, but it just means that I will have to then share that information with the child present, but with the parent or school teacher or whoever's present. Yeah, absolutely. I, I say the same thing with my adult clients. And I think, I guess it's it's to remind, perhaps if it's a friend of yours, if it's a teenager, that not to make promises, but you, know, you can say something like, um, I care about you. I really yeah. want to support you. But I don't know if I'm the best person to support you. So yeah. you know, I might have to tell someone yeah. in order to see you get the best help that you can. Yeah. So be kind, be honest. And this is not the time to make promises that you can't keep. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so we've spoken quite a lot and I think really importantly about what to do in the long run beforehand and also in the kind of imminent um, situation. But what doesn't get discussed very much is what happens after an attempt. And so I think it would be important to talk both about an attempt that isn't completed and then also some thoughts for people who are bereaved by suicide. Yeah. So in terms of... um 
a, a person that presents to say A and E, um, having had an attempt at their life, often what will happen, and it might be different from region to region, but generally what would happen is obviously they're seen by the frontline A and E staff and stabilised in terms of their physical health. And once they're medically stable, then they will have what is what's called a psychosocial assessment or self harm assessment, and that's often done by a psychiatrist or a junior psychiatrist and they will do a full like comprehensive history really so going back to when the the difficulties first started right through to the current date and the attempt and that's really important because actually it puts that person's problems into context really um it's not a time limited conversation because as we know i think gps get a hard rep because they've only got eight minutes really in a consultation and as you know that's barely any time at all to kind of scratch the surface so they would get a sort of a thorough psychiatric assessment in a and e and following that um again i can only speak for my region a decision is made as to follow up so all kids that present having made an attempt at their life or self-harmed will ordinarily get some follow-up within one to two weeks of that attempt by a community team. Now, it might be that they're known to services already, in which case it's their regular team that picks up and we just contact the um, psychiatric nurse that's um, attached to that child or the consultant that manages that child. But if they're not known to a team, again, it's thinking about referring an urgent referral to a mental health service to ensure that that person is picked up. Because if it's a, it's a serious attempt and there's ongoing plans, then obviously we need to try and make sure that we can contain things. If we're concerned that this person is likely to repeat the attempt and is still very much actively suicidal, it might be that it's not an option to discharge them from hospital. And we might need to think about them coming into hospital for a period of observation and treatment. And often it's a case that they might not necessarily leave the A&E department, but are transferred directly to a paediatric ward, or they might be transferred to a psychiatric ward for ongoing um, observation and treatment. So there's kind of different avenues that you can go down, but it tends to be that they're referred to a community team. It might be a crisis team, in which case, or a home treatment team, where they've got the facilities to be able to see that person more than once a week. Because obviously as a community practitioner, you're time limited, but a crisis and home treatment team almost replicate what that person would get in hospital. But if you feel that they're safe to go home, but just need extra support, then that might be an option as well. Thank you. That's really clear and very good to hear. And it makes the point that, because I think people worry that if if there is an attempt that they'll immediately be placed under the mental health section yeah um or you know some drastic thing will happen that's not necessarily the no. case and that's why a thorough assessment is always done to try and determine because wherever possible we try to keep people out of hospital and to support people at home in the community where we where they might feel safer but to kind of admit them in unfamiliar environment with unfamiliar people around that might not be very containing so it's again weighing up the risks and it might be that it's the risks have subsided and actually they are safe to manage in the community and i guess i want to talk about the the feelings that can come up after an attempted suicide and and that's the feelings both in the person who's attempted and also the people around them and there is such i mean we have an enormous stigma around mental health issues well i think globally every culture has a different way in which it's usually stigmatized but 
self-harm and suicide are particular taboos that they're things that we can't we can barely even think about let alone talk about and so I know that one thing that when I've worked with people who have had a previous attempt that they talk about is is the shame or the embarrassment the feeling that they have transgressed in some way and that Mm. people are looking at them as if they are flawed or broken in some way and I think again is to to make the point that we know that there are understandable reasons that they felt overwhelmed and that they felt unable to cope and that there's no reason to be ashamed exactly and that the people around them the professionals around them are invested in their their health and their care and and supporting them yeah i mean the reason we have these treatment options in the first place is for that very fact to be able to support those feelings those distressing feelings Mm -hmm. and we wouldn't expect that a person would experience those thoughts and and get through them without the right support Mm. and certainly that the professionals understand that an attempted suicide is really an expression of the distress that we're not talking about it as as a kind of behavior or as acting out or as manipulation that we're we're really thinking wow this person is really in trouble they're really distressed there was no other option for them but to end their life absolutely yeah so I touched before on some of the feelings that people around them might have. And again, just to say, you're absolutely entitled to your own feelings. But whilst that person is in recovery and they're mm. contemplating it, it's really important that they're not burdened also with a sense of having harmed somebody else. Yeah. And one of the things that we offer within a child service is things like family therapy so actually working with the whole family offering split sessions where one clinician will be with the child the other one will be with the parent and trying to work through the parents um sort of emotional turmoil as well and i don't want to dismiss at all those feelings because certainly when and and i've had experiences before with um, certainly as a teenager a friend of mine made a very serious attempt and you have lots of feelings there's a sense Mm. of confusion and betrayal and disappointment and outrage and sometimes there's a moral outrage and a feeling of feeling rejected or as if you weren't enough yeah perhaps I think is quite often what people feel like I wasn't enough to keep you here and so those are enormous feelings and I think that's absolutely right that people need to remember that there is support available for everyone involved or affected by this attempt yeah so again, I think it's quite important to think about those who have been bereaved by suicide. Mm. Again, because of the stigma and the taboo around suicide, it can make grieving and recovering from this kind of death quite different to if someone died in an accident or yeah. if they died from cancer or something. It adds a different layer of complexity to, to recovery. Because you've got the guilt of what if? What if I'd done this? Would that have happened? And that can really really eat away at people yeah. those feelings of guilt and and the shock I mean many deaths are shocking but I think suicides in particular can be shocking in terms of the suddenness yeah. particularly if someone that has worked very hard not to give away any hints that they were in distress in the first place mm. that can happen a lot with teenagers and also the violence of it you know sometimes yeah. the means can be particularly violent and so there's those additional factors to have to try to come to terms with as well as which I think is worth saying sometimes not in the immediate family or the immediate kind of group but there can be a morbid curiosity from outsiders around suicide which can feel very intrusive um, and turn what is a deep personal grief almost into a spectacle and and I, I think it's worth saying that because well I want people to know who are bereaved by suicide perhaps that 
you don't owe anybody an explanation. No. You don't have to justify what happened. You don't have to explain what went wrong or, you know, any of your feelings of responsibility yeah. or culpability. It's it's no yeah, one's business. Exactly. And to make the point in terms of, of feelings of guilt and responsibility, which can be very, very common, is again, very often the person who has committed suicide has worked incredibly hard to keep things from their immediate friends and family and to maintain a kind of shroud of normality around what was happening and it's incredibly unlikely that there was anything you could have done in fact they would have found a time and a place and a way when they knew that they were by themselves or unlikely to be disturbed or unlikely to be found for a while so I think sure it will feel like not much solace to hear that yeah. in the beginning but to hold on to to that that in all likelihood you did everything you could yeah. and there was nothing that you could have done and actually I think if you're struggling with these thoughts for some time because obviously we'd expect them as part of the normal grieving process that you would go over that those feelings of guilt despair anger but about making sure that you get the right support for yourselves and actually there are services that's specialise in the bereaved from suicide um, which I think we'll put a link on Absolutely. our um, blog posts which would be really helpful for people to tap into I think. Yeah I've got a long list of resources that we'll put on our mutual social media accounts and yeah. on our blogs and we'll get those out to you and those are resources for people feeling suicidal and those bereaved by suicide and I'll try to get some global resources out there as well. And that's it for today. As I mentioned, I have listed all of the resources on my website and Dr. Vora and I will share links across our social media accounts. Again, if you do think that either you or someone you care about is at imminent risk, please do call emergency services. And as I said at the start of the episode, there are lots of understandable reasons to feel lost and low. And there are resources out there to support you. So please, please, please do reach out to them if you can. Sarah and I really hope that this episode has been helpful. Thank you very, very much for listening. And please take very good care of yourselves. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.